And welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. Welcome as well to the holiday season because it is after Thanksgiving. This is Brian here. Hey, Brian. It's Dan with you. Welcome, Dan. Come in and know me better, man. Oh, love that line. It's that time of year when we consider slates of Christmas Carol adaptations. We're doing our due Dickens diligence. <laughs> That would be a good episode title if we weren't going down the route of borrowing sequel titles from Fast and Furious. Yeah, I'm, I had been leaning towards Victorian London Drift or something, but maybe we don't need to be married to that. We'll see where the spirits lead us. <laughs> so how was your Thanksgiving, Dan? I had a very good Thanksgiving. I went to two dinners. Actually... One of them did dinner and dessert, and then I went and did dessert somewhere else. So I double dipped on dessert. And then this weekend, we had a really good weekend. We went to the Ferris Wheel at National Harbor, um, and then we put up all our Christmas decorations yesterday. And it's real nice. It's cheerful around here. We watched the two Trolls holiday specials and then the Disney Prep and Landing, which is like the spy thriller version of a Christmas story as part of our movie night. So that was fun too. So I'm getting definitely a little early, but I'm definitely getting in the Christmas spirit. What about you, Brian? Yeah, it was a good Thanksgiving. Had some good food to eat. I worked through a whole lot of grad school homework, still <laughs> a lot more ahead these next two weeks. And then there will be like a marathon week where Christmas stuff goes up. Cause I mean, it's a whole operation getting Christmas decorations up because usually I got to put a bunch of stuff away i got to make room, get out all the stuff. So it'll happen, just not yet. Yeah, as mentioned in the pod before, I recently moved to a new house. And one of the luxuries of the new house is that we have an attic. And so it used to be we had to like, this is an exaggeration, but we had to disassemble our whole house, like move all the furniture out of all the rooms and like take everything out of storage, not just the Christmas stuff and it was just a pain to get everything everywhere. Now I just pulled a few boxes down from the attic and that was it. So it was definitely a relief. Nice. Well, listeners, the central texts I brought for our consideration this time around are unified in that they all use licensed characters in the established Dickens character roles. So the films that we watched are Mickey's Christmas Carol, a short from 1983, a Flintstones Christmas Carol, which was a television special from 1994, Bah Humduck, a Looney Tunes Christmas from 2006, and Barbie in a Christmas Carol from 2008. Dan, were you familiar with any of these before this week? I had seen Mickey's Christmas Carol last year. I watched it for the first time. None of the others I'd seen. Uh, I definitely watched my fair share of both Flintstones and Looney Tunes as a kid, but never saw either of these ones. And in fact, the Looney Tunes one came out while I was in high school so or college. So uh, definitely wouldn't have watched that one as a kid. Barbie's an interesting one. Uh, I've... Recently caught up with 
some of the Barbie movies, not this one before, but I think same animation and writing studio could be wrong, but actually kind of fond of the Barbie ones that I'd seen prior to this. So I was kind of excited to watch that one too. Cool. I want to delve our relationship with each of these a little more as we go through. Uh, I'll just say now that I had seen Mickey's Christmas Carol many times, a Flintstones Christmas Carol a couple times, but the last two were completely new to me. Gotcha. And I don't know about you, I watched them in chronological order, and I think that's the order it makes sense to discuss them. Sure, I watched them in the order you listed them, which is almost chronological. I watched Bah Humduck before Flintstones, but I think chronological makes sense for sure cool yeah i don't know why i listed it that way at the end of the last episode but hey either way it works no worries so listeners you know the drill you know how this story goes so it's at least a little bit a breath of fresh air that some of these actually experiment with the narrative a little bit they introduce some new aspects to the story they're not completely beholden to the dickens framework Uh, But broadly, this is the story of miser Ebenezer Scrooge, who sees the error of his ways over the course of one Christmas Eve night when he gets visited by ghosts who show him the past, present, and the future should he remain on his selfish course. Then, when the light of day dawns, he vows to live a better life and be more open and welcoming to others in his life more charitable know the spirit of christmas every day or something i forget exactly what the dickens line is but yeah yeah it's something along the lines of i shall hold the spirit of christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year very good yeah but because you don't need an in-depth recap i just thought we'd go through each individual adaptation just kind of pontificate on what we saw talk about anything that was new you know the characters who got assigned to the various roles and just things that struck us and stuck with us so first up is mickey's christmas carol this one runs like 24 minutes maybe it's uh kind of perfectly suited to be a half hour tv episode Uh, i think When I first saw it, it was on Wonderful World of Disney when I was like five. I remember that Michael Eisner hosted the program and it was an hour block. It was this short, but also paired with like two old Disney Christmas cartoons, like the Pluto's Christmas tree that has Chip and Dale in it and one where Donald was like chopping down a pine tree. He was like a redwood logger, and he gets a tree, too. Oh, interesting. I've seen the Pluto one before, but I've never seen that Donald one. So this was actually my very first Christmas Carol, Dan. Wow. Baby's first Christmas Carol. Indeed. I believe you said the first one for you was Muppet. Is that accurate? Yes, I think so. At least it's the first one I can recall. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, because I always thought there were two Marleys because of that. I was like, I, that for me, that was just part of the story. So I had this one taped off TV and would pop that VHS in each year. And so a lot of the beats of the story are established in my mind with these Disney characters in the role. 
So here we have Uncle Scrooge as his namesake, Scrooge. Interestingly, this specific presentation with this roster of Disney stars originated as a Disneyland record from 1974. So it's kind of like a book and tape that this started out as nine years before they did the film treatment. Interesting. Have you ever heard it? I have listened to it. It's pretty much identical. Actually, it's really close. And that was the first appearance of actor Alan Young voicing Scrooge McDuck. So he was on this record and then years later came back and did the short film version. And then only after that would he go on to star in the DuckTales TV show. Oh, interesting. This was like his launching pad. Not to be confused with Launchpad, the <laughs> main character or very prominent character in DuckTales. That's right. What do you think of his performance here? I really like it. He's got a Scottish accent. I mean, Scrooge McDuck is a Scottish character, but I think that accent works pretty well for Scrooge. It's kind of gruff. And again, I mean, I'm biased because it was the first Scrooge portrayal that I saw. But it's always worked pretty well for me. I buy him being miserly and then tender at the end. What do you think? I think it's a terrific vocal performance, absolutely. I think he he makes her a really good Scrooge. I think he's the best Scrooge of the bunch and uh, definitely the best vocal performance, or at least the one that I most admired as we were listening. And I agree, he hits the different, different ranges, like... Uh, He's real grumpy, and then he does give like a tenderness at the end, you know? So mm -hmm. he makes you invested in that. This time around, I was paying attention to the animation. I thought it had pretty good quality throughout, and there were some neat bits, like when Marley, who in this case is goofy, is following Scrooge up the stairs, and he starts out as a shadow, and the shadow grabs Scrooge's hat off his head. I thought that was kind of neat. That was my favorite bit of animation, too. The, the shadow bit when he was going up the stairs. It's kind of spooky. It's pretty cool, too. Yeah. And this is the most loyal of the four that we watched today. It really hits the beats and it really feels like, you know, London. Dickens era London. Right, it's a good introduction to the story. You know, it's reasonably all-ages friendly, but doesn't skimp completely on the scary bits. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, um, I think it, it properly does the Christmas yet to come, like, making it scary. It's It does the thing that was in the 1970... I think it was the 1970 Scrooge, right? Is that the one where it has, like, the descent to hell? Right. Yeah, so not quite as drawn out as that, but he does fall down into his grave and his coffin opens up into a fiery portal. Right. So it's just about there. One thing I love about this adaptation is the opening credits. Because it has these, like, crinkled parchment paper pages with kind of charcoal-style vintage illustrations of the characters. And it plays this original tune called Oh, What a Merry Christmas Day. And I've always been charmed by this opening. It's one of my favorites. It's very simple, maybe understated, but it works well. Yeah. 
when you were a kid, did you ever do the thing where you like spray a little bit of lemon juice on a piece of paper and then stick it in the oven at low heat and it turns like golden brown and you can like crinkle it some too. So it looks like old parchment. I did something like that for a school assignment where we were supposed to write like an old journal, but I used coffee or tea or something to stain it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do that was like that? I don't remember. It was a school project, I think, but that was my mom's idea. Uh, I don't know if that was like instructions from the school or it was something that we came up with. And my mom was like, this is how you do it. I, I honestly don't remember. But that's what it made me think of when you saw the, the crinkled paper there. Mm-hmm. This is a little far afield, but in the mid 2000s or the later 2000s, the angry video game nerd did an episode and he imitated this opening for his Christmas special. Only he had an electric guitar cover of the theme song. Oh, nice. And I, I love that. It's like, it sounds really good on guitar. Like, That's awesome. I'm going to drop that on the Discord. Which you can join at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com if you haven't. Uh, one more thing. I, I can't believe we're talking this long about this paper texture in the opening credits, but our old blog, earnthis.net, the background image is, well, at least it's supposed to be a, like an old parchment style. I look, I just pulled it up and it looks more like a, I don't know, like a Egyptian parchment or something rather than like a crinkled old parchment with wrinkles in it. But that, that was a vibe I was going for on our old blog too. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can talk too long about this opening sequence. <laughs> I've always loved it. I channeled it a couple times on my TV show, Count Gauntley's Horrors from the Public Domain. One, specifically to imitate this opening, I did for my, like, ninth and final Christmas episode, a uh, Christmas Carol tribute, and used this opening. But also, I, like, got a whole... After Effects project file that could kind of scrollify images, make them look like parchment style with kind of posterized shading. And I used it for a Mandalorian credits tribute as well, because at the end of every episode of Mandalorian, I don't know if you've watched those, but it ends with like paintings of the different scenes that were in the episode. Mm, interesting. And it like kind of pans and scans over the paintings. Mm -hmm. um, so a little bit in the same vein. And it has kind of that crinkled texture too. But back on track. What did you think of the various part assignments in this one, Dan? Because as you said, this one is very loyal. So we really did get a known Disney character in pretty much every Dickens role. I thought it was pretty good overall. A couple moments I was like, all right, they're just doing like a Disney All-Stars thing. Like when the ghost of Christmas past was Jiminy Cricket and he had like the same badge that he had in Pinocchio. That felt a little bit like just cross-brand advertising or a wink or something. But most of it I thought worked pretty well. I, I like Pete. My, my kids find Pete really intimidating. So he makes a great Christmas yet to come. But I think in general, the, the cameos are pretty good. And they I really like, it's kind of weird, 
the I don't is it actually Daisy Duck who plays Belle? But she's got like really long eyelashes and does they like lean into making her seductive. I told you, Dan, back in our first <laughs> first one of these, you said it was uh the one in two thousand four. Who played Belle in that one? Oh, um uh Jennifer Love Hewitt, I think. I said she's got nothing on Daisy Duck. <laughs> I'm not sure I'd put her above Jennifer Love Hewitt, but, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Although I did notice she talks about puckering her lips. She doesn't have lips. She got a bill, Brian. That's right. The other one of those that pulled me out was they talked about how excited they were to eat uh, a goose, I think it was. And I was like, my man, you're genetically related to a goose. This is like one step away from cannibalism we're talking about here. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Well, that's true. Yeah, I guess because uh, nephew Fred is Donald Duck, which works well, you know, uncle and nephew. And yeah, I guess they do talk about that. The person we actually see eating the goose is the mouse family. So maybe, maybe the mice eat geese and the ducks eat something else but no i think they do talk about that they're going to have goose there as well something that i find interesting about the roster of characters is that yeah you've got like the mickey all-stars in kind of the big crucial roles so mickey as bob cratchit and goofy as marley things like that Uh, but then the supporting cast of characters is interesting like very prominent featuring of the wind in the willows characters so you have mole and rat as the alms collectors and you have mr toad as fezziwig also like the weasels from it come in as the grave diggers lots of wind in the willows representation yeah it's kind of a deep cut And then a couple other characters you kind of only see in the background or like at Fezziwig's party are still recognizable. You have the animal characters from Robin Hood, like the animal children who are kind of hanging around the the bunny children and the, the little turtle kid from Robin Hood. And I feel like the deepest cut is the secretary bird who is kind of the king lion's minion in bed knobs and broomsticks when they go to the island that's populated by sentient animals he's he's there at fezziwig's party and he's dancing with lady cluck from robin hood wow bed knobs and broomsticks wait so is that a animated bit from bed knobs and broomsticks or is it like taking a live action thing and making it animated it's a mix. Okay. Bedknobs and Broomsticks basically copies everything that works from Mary Poppins. Right. Okay. So there's an extended sequence where the humans go into an animated world and interact with a, a group of animated animal characters. As discussed in last week's episode about our top 25 favorite movies. Exactly. But I was talking with somebody at one point about why did they pick these characters? Wind in the Willows and Robin Hood and Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and he speculated that it's because those are all stories that take place in England, Dan. Oh, okay. I thought that was somewhat interesting. Or at least they're historical. They're not like in the present day or just in like a fantasy world. They, they kind of have a historical placement, so they, they fit a little more naturally into that. That's true, too. 
one trait of this one, as mentioned, 24 minutes long, approximately. My recording was 25 minutes. To me, this is a problem because it's really hard to tell the whole Christmas Carol story in under a half hour, I think. I mean, at least to like hit the beats with real impact because you just kind of have to rush through it, especially if you're going to do what this one does and be really faithful and try to hit as many of the Dickens stuff as you can. You're just kind of booking through it. So that to me is, is really a downside of, of the length. Now the other animated ones we watched were a little bit longer than that. So th- this one was kind of stuck out with how short it was for me. I agree. It's quite rushed. You really only get one key scene for each bit each act, past, present, future. You know, there's no charwoman and laundress stealing possessions off the corpse. Mm -hmm. But also there's no schoolhouse. Lots of pretty popularly adapted scenes that are dropped in the name of concision. It works okay. Like I said, it's a good primer, a good intro. But you do feel rushed, especially if you're familiar with the more lengthy adaptations i do agree with that that it's the great first dickens it was the first one i had shown to my daughters i think and you know they they got scared at the right moments and they got excited at the right moments and they were engrossed i think it really does a good job of like uh, of hitting the core beats even if it's in kind of rapid succession i remember when i was a kid it never really bothered me when things were short like it always felt stretched out in my head now as an adult if it's only 20 minutes, I feel it's only 20 minutes, but Mm -hmm. I feel that going back to most Disney movies, like even when they're like 80 minutes, it's it's like it tends to feel short to me. Yeah. Like they cram a lot of stuff happening into a movie. That's not very long. Mm -hmm. One final thing I want to address that I'll come back to in other adaptations is are there like, traditional things we would expect from Disney, any gags or hallmarks that are here that make this stand out as a distinctly Disney Christmas Carol, Dan? Oh, I hadn't thought about it from that angle. I guess just from a tone angle, each one that we're going to talk about today, I think is pretty representative of of the tone of that franchise or, or that intellectual property. And here you kind of have the earnestness with a, just a little bit of hijinks and you got the silly voices and the characters kind of doing a couple of their things. Like you still get the personalities of the characters themselves and the way that they're kind of typically represented on top of a, a more earnest display. And I think that blend of just a little bit of hijinks with the honest approach to the material felt very Disney-esque to me. But were there specific, like, check marks you were looking for, Brian? Not as many for this one. Really, the key moment that I think of is you have Goofy as Marley fall down the stairs and you get, ha, 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 hooey! <laughs> yeah. It would have been funny if they had had Scrooge actually swimming in a pool of coins. Oh, True. This one had a couple firsts and lasts that I wanted to shout out real quick because it comes up in other uh, adaptations too. But this was the final appearance of the original voice actor for Donald Duck, a guy named Clarence Nash, who had been voicing him since like the 30s. 
Oh, wow. And there's a couple names in the credits that would go on to long careers at Disney, like uh, towards the end, it says, and thanks to the contributions of, and it's like a wall of names, but about two thirds of the way down the list is John Lasseter. Really? Yeah. That's wild. So this was one of his first Disney projects. And he would be chief. How many years later? Uh, 30 years later. Yeah. So that's Mickey's Christmas Carol, Dan. Shall we move along to our 1994 inductee? Sure. Okay, well, next up we have the Flintstones Christmas Carol. So I remember watching this one on TV, not in 1994. They must have rerun it, you know, a couple times. At some point, I saw it. I think it was on TBS or something. That tended to run the Hanna-Barbera type stuff back before I had cable. Gotcha. I saw a decent amount of Cartoon Network Flintstones reruns. And then I always liked the old stuff they would show on Cartoon Network in like the early 90s. And then they kind of branched more into original stuff in the 2000s. And then they... Back when it was like a thing where you get satellite TV, you got, oh, 250 channels. And one of them was a Cartoon Network spinoff called Boomerang that showed old cartoons, like, you know, pre-1990s mostly, I think. And definitely had that on a lot in my middle school years and high school years and saw some Flintstones there. In fact, the stream that I found of this one had the boomerang logo in the corner. Oh, nice. Yeah. A couple thoughts on that. Well, one, I always admired boomerang because it didn't have commercials. Oh, I don't remember that. Nice. Early on, I think a lot of cable stations were that way. And then inevitably ads crept into the mix as in the next couple years, they will even on Netflix and stuff. Mm hmm because they'll never have enough. Once they learn how to broadcast into your dreams, they will. <laughs> it's true. But I remember when I was really little, like preschool, uh, I would go to daycare. Both my parents were in the military, in the Coast Guard, and they would take me to the Coast Guard headquarters daycare center. And so we would get up early, early, and in the time before they'd go to work and take me to the daycare, I would tune in to, I think, TBS, the Superstation. And early in the morning, they would show old episodes of original Scooby-Doo, and I think Flintstones also. But at one point, they ran ads that were like, our lineup is going to be moving to a dedicated channel called Cartoon Network. And I think Cartoon Network started in like 1994. So maybe I saw this ad on a tape or something because I, I can't imagine my memory going back that far. But I, I have a distinct picture in my head of that this announcement was made. Gotcha. That's interesting. I would have pegged it as before then. I guess I'm kind of conflating my timelines and only watched it after I was six years old. Then again, I don't really remember too much about my life earlier than six year old. So th that could work. Anyhow, though, this is a, a middling 
entrant into the Flintstones franchise. It's not super old. It is from 1994. It's from the era of the Flintstones kids. So to those who are not super knowledgeable, and I myself am not a complete devotee, but they kept making Flintstone specials for like a long time. Like decades later than you might think. Huh. And actually it kept the same cast for a pretty long time. So here in 1994, you still have Henry Corden as Fred. This was his last appearance. Apparently he was not the original Fred Flintstone, but he did hold the role the longest of any actor. Also, this features the original Wilma, Gene Vanderpile, who held the role from the very beginning of the franchise up until a couple years after this when she died. Wow. No G. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but I thought it was kind of interesting that one of the characters who is in this special is a police officer named Philo Quartz. And apparently he was a character introduced in Flintstones Kids. Okay. I didn't recognize him, yeah. Yeah, it was one of a number of series around this time, early 90s, that was kind of channeling Muppet Babies. All the franchises made a version where the characters were babies or little kids. You had a pup named Scooby-Doo. You had uh, Baby Looney Tunes. Tiny Tunes, yeah. Well, Tiny Tunes, but also Baby Looney Tunes. Oh, there was a Baby Looney Tunes, too? Yes. Huh. Okay. But, yeah, very much of the era that they did this. Pub Name Scooby-Doo is my favorite of that bunch. At least the ones I've seen. I would probably have to agree. I've not watched too much of any of them. It always just rang a little hollow to me. It's like, okay, we got to do, we got to use these established IP characters, but we got to do something new. And the new thing we're going to do is what that other studio did that made some money for them. That's how I feel about the babyfication trend. They tended to have pretty good theme songs though. Yes. So let's talk about what specifically happens in this special. It features the well-known bedrock inhabitants performing a community theater rendition of A Christmas Carol. So this is weird for a couple reasons. Because remember, this is the Stone Age, Dan. <laughs> this is thousands of years before the birth of Christ. So how did they have Christmas? But Flintstones has had several Christmas specials. This gets one level weirder because they are adapting a novel from 1843. So how is that happening? I mean, there are dinosaurs there, so we kind of have to apply a little bit of skepticism on everything that's happening here. But I did find this snippet. This was from uh, someone named Jackson on Letterboxd. He wrote, What are the logistics of a prehistoric society performing a Christmas carol, despite the fact that the original story was written in 1843? He goes on to say, I have two theories. One, there is a time traveler that lives or has lived among the people and gave them the technology and culture of the future without actually giving them 
the fu- futuristic technology probably just means the culture of the future without giving them the the technology. But so that's that's option one is time traveler came and, and dropped a, a Dickens book on the ground, kind of like in Back to the Future 2 when Biff brings the almanac to the future. Or I guess, no, wait, that's the past. And here's the second possible theory he writes. So two, the Flintstones actually takes place in a post-apocalyptic society where we lost all of our technology, even things as simple as paper, and chose to try and live our life as if nothing had changed, trying to find suitable alternatives for television, books, cars, etc. So I guess in that scenario, Jackson may argue that like the we remembered a Christmas carol and we remembered Jesus Christ, but also like society has downfallen and dinosaurs are alive again for some reason. I don't think either of these stand up to too much scrutiny, but th- those were the theories I read online. I've heard the latter for Aladdin, but n- never for the Flintstones before. Oh, that's interesting. I've actually heard that second theory related to the Flintstones before. I've heard people say that the Jetsons and the Flintstones actually take place at the same time. The Jetsons live in the cloud city up above and the Flintstones are in the ruined earth below. Oh, I like that. And that both are in the aftermath of some cataclysm that wrecked the surface. The Jetsons are like the god beings living up in the clouds. That's pretty funny. Right. Another theory, though, we have a character here who presumably was never seen before or since, whose name is Charles Brickens, and he narrates the play. Okay. And so I wonder if perhaps Charles Brickens wrote this play and potentially this story. Interesting. It's like a uh, alternate reality type thing, like alternate yeah. universe. Yeah, potentially. He's voiced by John Rice davies Oh, that's random. <laughs> a bit, you know, Gimli from Lord of the Rings or Sala from Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. He pops up. But yeah, we have this framing story where the whole thing is a play being put on, similar to when we talked about Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Kind of like that, but I say it goes one step further where this one actually has Fred as the lead actor of the play going through his own Scrooge experience. Meanwhile, he's enacting the Christmas Carol on stage. So it's kind of like this dual layer Christmas Carol. It's kind of clever. Yeah, it uses the device much better and much more consequentially than Mr. Magoo did. Yeah. Because, yeah... Fred has let his head swell because he's been cast in this lead role. And so he's acting high and mighty and disrespecting the other people in the community, Uh, especially he's ignoring his family and just like heaping responsibility on them while ignoring his own responsibilities. And so as Scrooge in the play is coming to see the error of his ways and the way that selfishness has steered him towards a bad fate, Fred starts to make the same realization in his own life. So yeah, it's it's happening and unfolding on these two planes. The other layer on it that kind of adds some dimension to it is that characters in the Flintstones reality, not the Christmas Carol reality, keep getting sick. I forget what they call the name of the bug. They have some name for the bug. 
It makes him green in the face. And they keep having to get recast. I think Wilma fills all of them, but it adds like a layer where, especially with the Bell stuff, it, it was going to be some other woman who he was making goo goo eyes at. But when it's cast as Wilma, and I think she plays one of the ghosts too or something, it like brings home the the themes for Fred personally. Right. And it it gets complicated. It was making me think of High School Musical, the musical, the series, <laughs> where it's like, yeah, just in the spur of the moment, characters are getting swapped out. And like, how do people in the audience even follow this? Right. Because, yeah, Wilma first has to come aboard. Like, she starts out as the costume designer and like the stage manager. Like, she's, you know, the person that if somebody says line, she's given the prompts. Mm-hmm. But then this bedrock bug sweeps through and then she's got to step up and be the ghost of Christmas past. So she's, you know, showing Scrooge the error of his ways, showing him the bad stuff in his past. Uh, But then she's got to step in and also be Belle. And so, Dan, let's talk a little bit about the actual logistics of staging this. So this would be impossible. (laughs) This would be impossible to stage. You couldn't do it. They defy reality multiple times. So there's a moment when, like, the camera pulls out from inside Fezziwig's party where Wilma is Belle. But then on the outside, she's the ghost of Christmas past. How did they do this? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Here's my theory. My read on it is... So first of all... The people who made this, you know, the animators wanted to actually make a Christmas Carol adaptation. So they're like, "Eh, let's just pretend it's Christmas Carol. But if you're trying to think about it from an in-universe perspective, my reading is that this is the way that the audience is imagining it on stage. So not what actually is happening on stage, but a subjective representation of like someone who's really immersed in the story would be imagining it with like the ghostly stuff. Yeah. I guess there's something to that. It seems like somewhat of a generous read to me. (laughs) But Mr. Slate, the boss, plays Marley, and he can go through walls. He just straight up hovers off the floor and shimmies through a solid wall. Maybe I was going to say it could be like advanced projection techniques, but they don't have electricity, so I don't think so. Yeah, Some, some tricky stuff going on here. In terms of Flintstone tropes that get worked in, though, everybody has a stone name. <laughs> so you got Marbly, uh, Charles Brickens, as we said, but even Ebonezer Scrooge. He's <laughs> doing a lot of boning out there. What what else did we see, Dan? We, of course, we had all the animals performing the jobs of, like, appliances. You got to have the, the big meat with the bone sticking out of it that he eats at some point. Of course, he's got to say yabba-dabba-doo. And even beyond the names, you got to have Stone Age puns, rock puns, dinosaur puns, things like that. Any other specific ones you had in mind? Well, did you see all that stuff pretty well represented here, would you say? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say all that there in spades, for sure. Good, good. And what did you think of performances, character casting that was done here? 
So one touch I really liked was Mr. Slate, who's Fred's boss. He plays Marbly, who's the Marley character. And I liked that when we meet him at the beginning, he already seems to have had his Scrooge moment. Just he like basically is already the Marley character, like how he was already being a nice boss. And then that kind of lined up with him actually being the Marley character. I thought was a nice touch. Yeah, I liked what they did with him, too. On Amazon, the little factoid sidebar I mentioned so often, it said that, like, in the early planning stages of this special, they were originally going to make Mr. Slate Scrooge, because obviously he's the mean boss, so that's who you go with. He's the Scrooge. But then they were like, no, we can't really build a whole Flintstone special around Mr. Slate. Oh, yeah. Like, it couldn't be that, because Fred's got to be prominent. And I think, ultimately, they they made it work the best. Like, having this arc really works better for Fred that he is selfish and then learns to not be. Yeah. Although, I like the, the premise and I like the setup, but I just, I didn't really buy, like, what about it caused real-life Fred Flintstone to have his change of heart? It's like... I guess because he saw these things with Wilma in her pl- in the place of the character. And so like that triggered his real emotions and his real like uh, regrets and stuff. But the main thing is that he's just enacting the play. So like, I don't know, I, I didn't really get that he would have he would have felt a full change of heart. Although I did really like the bit where it turns from the play to like authentic conversation between Fred and Wilma towards the end. Cause you see someone off stage that's not in the script and they're just kind of talking. I thought that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some interesting meta theatrical things happening yeah. here. And one thing on your remark about how you can't do a Flintstones thing that stars Mr. Slate. It's gotta be Fred Flintstone to that point. I noticed this time around it's called Mickey's Christmas Carol, but Mickey is not the one undergoing the Christmas Carol. It's really like the Disney Christmas Carol. You're right. Great observation. <laughs> but in in that regard, I mean, it's that one is pretty similar to Muppets Christmas Carol. Like you don't make Kermit Scrooge. You don't make Mickey Scrooge. Right. Maybe they can't have their their Hallmark character be nasty. You couldn't have asshole Kermit. Yeah, I guess so. And even in, uh, well, we'll talk about the Bugs Bunny one in a minute, but they didn't make Bugs Bunny. I guess he's Bugs Bunny isn't really capable of an emotional arc, I don't think. So maybe that was the problem there. (laughs) Um, I will say once it got into the play itself, this one was pretty faithful. Like it had a lot of the same, a lot of the important beats, uh, more so than, for example, Mr. Magoo's Christmas. And more so than a couple of the other ones we're about to talk about. Yeah. Like it had the knocker that turned into Marley, if I'm not mistaken. I think only this one and Mickey had the knocker, mm-hmm. which pretty much all of them had had in our past two years. Well, the next two, Dan, introduced some narrative innovations. Right. They stretched their legs a little bit. So are we ready to talk about the next installment? Let's go for it. Okay. So, number three is Bah Humduck. 
a Looney Tunes Christmas from 2006. I actually remember this one coming out because it was in that period I've mentioned a few times where I was in high school, I had cable for the first time, and I would pretty much just leave this little TV set in the corner of my room on all the time. And so I remember seeing the ads for this one, but I did not watch it at the time. I just thought, wow, they're doing another Christmas Carol. I, I knew someday, though, I would watch it. I had never even heard of this one prior to this. I guess I didn't know they were still doing Looney Tunes stuff in the mid 2000s. Yeah. So Dan, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, what's been your experience with the Looney Tunes franchise? So I watched a lot of the classic Chuck Jones era fifties ones when I was a kid. Um, that was the type of stuff they were playing on Cartoon Network. And I always got a big kick out of it. Um, so I've seen, you know, the majority of the great Looney Tunes, although it's been a while since I have, I, I got to pull them out again at some point. Um, but I know most of the characters. I know most of the the tropes and the tones and all that. Um, what about you, Brian? Yeah, I mean, I was broadly familiar with the old shorts, but I would say I was probably most familiar with this era of the cast, this like 90s and later voice actors. Because I remember that we had a Looney Tunes Christmas album from around the, the late 90s that had these actors. This was also, you know, the, the Space Jam era, post-Space Jam. Because in the old days, like, everybody was Mel Blanc, kind of the creator of this roster of characters. But then, decades later... You've got the roles played largely by Billy West, who would be Fry in Futurama, as well as multiple other leading roles in Futurama. But uh, he took over as Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. And then the lead in this special is Daffy, who's voiced by a guy named Joe Alasky. And said he also was the voice behind a bunch of the other ones yeah the the voices were a bit of a mixed bag for me on this one not as bad as like the oh the the muppets one from last year forget what that one was called the halloween one from last year when i say last year i mean published last year not discussed on the pod last year right M uh, muppets haunted mansion i believe you are yes yeah that one some of the voices sounded really off especially kermit mm-hmm this one wasn't quite as bad, but I definitely notice it when it's not the original. I mean, I have seen Space Jam. I don't know how much this overlaps with Space Jam, and that one works okay for me. But I thought Bugs Bunny sounded a little off in this one. I thought Daffy was okay, but I did always notice that the voices weren't the original. Like, you could tell it was some voice actor doing his best impersonation. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't sound like the classic characters. Although, like you said, Daffy pretty much nails it. So he, I get the feeling he's probably been doing it for a while. Mm -hmm. But this movie, watching it this past week, I was thinking of how many of these voice actors I have met, stood in line to talk to at conventions. So Jim Cummings, who is the Tasmanian Devil, I've stood in line for him. 
Billy West, also Maurice LaMarche, who who did he play in this one? Somebody, one of the one of the prominent ones. Wow, Maurice LaMarche. And so I was thinking, Dan, uh, who would you say is the most famous or important person you've spoken to? Yeah, you mentioned this off pod, and the best that I could come up with was at my graduation, Tim Kaine spoke. So I shook his hand, and he said congratulations to me, and I said thanks. So if you count him, former vice presidential candidate and current U.S. Senator, Tim Kaine is my pick. Okay, solid. What about you, Brian? I spoke at my college graduation, and... Defense Secretary Robert Gates had just taken a position at the university. I think he was hired as the provost or something. And so he spoke there, too. And so we talked for a while, sitting backstage. And that's probably my answer. But my brother has pictures with Joe Biden. Wow. And also Hillary, which I care less about. But he actually has a president, a president picture. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm a little jealous. My dad did this leadership program, like, man, probably 20 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago. And it was led by Colin Powell. I can't remember if this was after he was Secretary of State or the same time he was Secretary of State. But Colin Powell, uh, he has a Medal of Honor. And because my dad was in this program run by him, he got invited to his Christmas party in where my dad went out to his mansion in D.C., with a bunch of high up types. He probably met some people there, uh, but he got to hold the medal of honor. There was like almost like a, a station where you could go and hold it and get your picture taken with medal of honor at Colin Powell's birthday party, or excuse me, Christmas party, which I thought was pretty cool. That's awesome. And to bring things back on track, Maurice LaMarche plays Yosemite Sam. Okay. AKA the ghost of Christmas present, I think. Yes. But the angle of this one is it's got Daffy as Scrooge. It takes place in the modern era, present day of 2006, presumably. But this character is a megalomaniacal tycoon who runs like a Walmart style big box store. And all the other Looney Tunes characters work there at the store. And... Daffy, as their tyrannical boss, is forcing them to work on Christmas Day. One interesting thing about this is it really leans into the setup portion. I measured it at 46 minutes, so probably an hour if it were on TV. And it's not till we're like around minute 23 or 24 that we actually meet the ghost of Christmas past. So that's halfway through. And that's a lot of setup. I mean, you're then kind of then forcing yourself to rush through the beats, just like you did in the Disney one, the Mickey one, except this is like a self-inflicted wound because you're spending so long on the slapsticky opening. It's got all these different characters that we know as employees rather than just like one employee or even two employees. There's like six or eight of them that get a moment or scene here. You got like Speedy Gonzalez assembling toys and Pepe Le Pew in the clothes or perfume section or something like that. Porky pigs in there. So just 
a lot of this early kind of wacky humor at the the Christmas Eve selling stuff at, as the setup. Mm-hmm. It almost felt like it's a wonderful life in the structure. Right. Where you spend a whole lot of time setting up the way things are, and then he's going to see the other side really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting, the whole, you're going to have to work on Christmas thing. Because even Scrooge himself didn't do that. Scrooge gives Cratchit the, the day off on Christmas. Yeah. I guess they needed something. Although I was thinking about it, and this will come more to the forefront in the Barbie one, where I have some thoughts. But in in these where it's like about money and about working and when you work. And but these are all kids properties. I mean, I know Flintstones was originally an adult cartoon, but I think we can safely say that the the Christmas Carol one is a family focused uh, Christmas Carol. So all of these are really family or kids focused. And I don't know, like having the protagonist be someone who's bummed about having to work is not a very kid focused conflict. And that really struck me on this one. It's like, I don't know who cares about how a store works. Like kids aren't really thinking too much about that. You know, it's not a oh, man. part of their day to day. Yeah, I think you're right. But I was wondering with this device where you got to work on Christmas day, like is Scrooge from 1843 too soft hearted <laughs> for today's corporate capitalist climate? I mean, it's like it's it's like it's not even tyrannical anymore to say be all the earlier the next day. Not today when, you know, people sometimes it seemed like not this year, but definitely in years past, a lot of places stay open on Thanksgiving pretty much all all the time. Just somebody's open. Yeah, I saw a tweet today that was something like I'm excited when I work on Christmas they're going to give me extra overtime. So it'll be 2.5 times my normal hourly rate on Christmas Day. And the replies were like, you got to work on Christmas Day, though. I mean, that's kind of messed up. Like what sort of dystopia you have to work on? You're getting staffed on Christmas Day, but at retail, you know, but mm -hmm. um, I think you're right. I think you're on to something, you know, and in, in old time London, people would shut down and just spend time with family. Maybe the, the goose cellar would be open, but that's about it. Right. <laughs> I think it says something that the Scrooge standards of the day now seeming perhaps too lenient. It makes you think. <laughs> oh, it, it certainly does. Yeah. <laughs> he was just not enough of a taskmaster, Dan. We can no longer relate to those standards. Yeah. Just having an employee who maybe doesn't make very much money. We, we've moved beyond that. We need to really get to the grindstone to appreciate the gravity of this story. I think my favorite Scrooge is a curmudgeon who is a taskmaster, like you said, um, was from the Disney one where... They talk about his salary and he got a raise from uh, it was something like two shillings a day to two shillings and a half penny a day as part of his promotion where he now gets to do Scrooge's laundry. I thought that was pretty funny. 
<laughs> and how happy Mickey seems about that. <laughs> and you mentioned that we get a lot of the traditional Looney Tunes gags in this one with Speedy Gonzalez wrapping the presents and stuff and Pepe Le Pew doing his problematic shtick. Let me throw one more thing at you. This Scrooge sitting up in a big tower with his name or at least his image on it. Getting any Trump vibes from this Scrooge? Oh, maybe so. Man, now I want to see that version. Trump is Scrooge? Yeah. The Trump Christmas Carol. He needs to go back to being in movies like Home Alone 2. Yeah, maybe. Did you have any thoughts on specific character castings in this one, Dan? I thought they mostly worked. One that we haven't touched on is Bugs does appear, and he's kind of the Dickens character. He's not strictly Dickens, but he like uh, is hanging around narrating what's happening. Not exactly narrating, but like uh, kind of just hanging around and commenting on what's happening. Made me think of Dickens and the Rizzo in Muppet Christmas Carol. Mm -hmm. I think that's apt. I wasn't sure where to slot him on this grid that I was keeping of who played who. Uh, but yeah, he's like the omniscient narrator who can literally pop in because he's always digging the, the tunnels. Right. And this one actually does have the uh, pool of coins for him to swim in, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. I'm going to go lock myself in my office and roll around in my money, is what he says when he needs to cope with something stressful that happened, which is very Scrooge McDucky. <laughs> That's right. Another touch I liked is when we see tombstones, the big tombstone that he sees when he goes to Christmas yet to come phase is it's just a tombstone that says, I am dead. It's like, I'm dead, which I think is pretty funny. It's like, we kind of know you are. I don't know if that was supposed to be a name, like a Bart Simpson's prank call kind of name. I am dead. Or if it was really supposed to be just like a announcement on a gravestone. Hey, I'm here because I'm dead. In case you didn't know. There, Yeah, there were a couple beats that made me laugh. Like I, I actually chuckled. I expelled air through my nose. <laughs> The kind of Tiny Tim analog in this one is Porky's daughter, who was not a character I was familiar with. I don't know how many other appearances she's made. Um, because Porky is kind of the Bob Cratchit, the like assistant manager to Tyrant Daffy. The daughter is named Priscilla Pig, and she's voiced by Tara Strong, who is a voice actor who pops up pretty frequently. She was essentially doing her Twilight Sparkle voice from having starred recently in My Little Pony. Hmm. Uh, but you may also recognize Tara Strong as Timmy Turner in Fairly Odd Parents. I believe she was Bubbles on Powerpuff Girls and also Raven in Teen Titans. She's been in a million things. Yeah. She was really close to Kevin Conroy who was also in a million things, uh, but passed away recently. The original voice of the animated Batman. A Cu couple more minor thoughts on this one. One that really annoyed me is during the different ghost things, whenever something happened that reflected poorly on Daffy, the ghost would just like smack him on the head, like 
just over and over again. It, I probably was only like four times, but it felt like 15 times. Like whenever he did something that was uh, you, you dinkus, look what's happening to you. Look, look how you're ruining this Christmas. They would smack him on the head to like get it home. And to me, this is like the Looney Tunesification of the Christmas Carol, where to get a point home, you got to smack someone on the head and maybe his bill will go flying or he'll get a big lump that sticks out of his head or something. Very Looney Tunes ish. For sure. This also had a beat that I feel like should be more prominent, but isn't in many or possibly any other Christmas carols, which is that after he has his change of heart and he's like talking about all the nice things he's going to do, he has a moment of hesitation where he's like adding up in his head. Huh? This is all going to be really expensive to me. I'm going to start losing money. Do I really want to do this? And then Priscilla, the pig comes and he feels happy again. But I do think there's something to be said for like, if you're going to have a full on transformation in one night, there's going to be like lingering impulses of your selfishness that you need to address. I thought that was a good beat. Absolutely. I talked about it a little bit in our first Christmas Carol outing. But yeah, versions where Scrooge promotes Bob Cratchit. He's like, you're going to be my partner. But then sometimes Scrooge like forgives debts and things. And if your whole business is collecting interest on loans, like you can't just give up your your records you can't throw that stuff out and still be profitable like what money are you gonna pay bob with now if the whole business falls apart right it's like you gotta weigh pros and cons that's all i got for this one well then let's talk about our last bit of fare for the evening which is barbie in a christmas carol so, Dan, you said you have seen maybe a couple of these Barbie movies before. Yeah, I've seen Barbie Fairytopia and the sequel to Barbie Fairytopia, which is Barbie Mermaidia. And first of all, they're like crazy dense with lore. It's like they have all sorts of rules about the fairy universe and names for places and what it means if you have your wings and stuff. Like I was expecting something that was just like a preschooler throwaway but this is more like a a middle grade novel in terms of the the depth um but i actually think they do the the fairy ones that is they do a really good job of like presenting a full hero cycle in earnest like the you know who's the guy who wrote about the hero cycle i forget it wasn't young but one of his proteges campbell yes yeah joseph campbell and i think uh i think those movies are like legitimately pretty good so I was I haven't seen too many of the Barbie universe, but I was excited to see like how that would translate to a Christmas Carol, because I just based on the date, I think it was similar timeline to the Fairytopia ones. So I thought it was going to be like a similar animation and writing style. And I think it actually probably does come from similar creative team. So, yeah, that's that was kind of my experience with the Barbie. I mean, my girls like Barbie's my daughters. Um, but I've been warmer towards Barbie media than I initially expected. Yeah, I've not seen too many of these. I know that there are a bunch. It's the kind of thing where they've put them out year after year after year. But I think it's interesting when there's a case where you have a well-established character who's voiced by like one actor routinely. 
Like that person really owns that part. And yet it's not necessarily someone you think of as being like a movie or TV star. Uh, another example of this that I would think of is Ronald McDonald. Hmm. Like there was somebody who was Ronald McDonald for a really long time, like all through my childhood, at least. They actually don't use Ronald as much these days. Um, but Barbie is another example of that because here she's voiced, at least in the frame story, by Kelly Sheridan. And this actress voiced Barbie in like all Barbie media for a long time. Wow. Like all these movies that they did, but also like Barbie video games and computer titles. She was the go-to Barbie. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, one other thing I forgot to mention my experience with the Barbie franchise is in the late 2010s, they did a web series that eventually got released on Netflix called Barbie Life in the Dreamhouse, which is like a really zippy, tongue-in-cheek Barbie comedy of series of shorts. And probably like the one that an adult audience would get the most out of. I certainly laugh when I watch those. It's like it has Ken being completely ridiculous and just some like legitimate poking fun at tropes and stuff in those. So um, and and it just goes by very quickly. It's almost like uh, Ned's declassified in that regard where you have like four stories in an 11 minute little segment that need to get through. And so it just hand waves plot points with like ridiculous shenanigans but in a way that makes it kind of fun. So that's another one you could look up. Barbie Life in the Dreamhouse. That's cool. My biggest Barbie involvement is uh, a long time ago, I got a Sega Genesis at a yard sale and it came with a handful of games. It had Sonic and Knuckles in there. It also had Barbie Supermodel. <laughs> so I have played through Barbie Supermodel on the Sega Genesis more than once. Wow. Multiple times. <laughs> it's not a very long game. Okay. But that's about the limit of my experience. Let's talk a little about the narrative inventions in this story, though, Dan. Because I think the one that slaps you in the face right off the bat, we have a female Scrooge. Not something we've seen in any of our adaptations before. Yeah, and we have the Princess Bride... Let me tell you about a story. And then it kind of flashes back. So this one has a framing story, too. But instead of it being a play, it's Barbie telling her kid sister, I think it is, or something like that, about someone who looks a lot like Barbie, but isn't actually Barbie in the past. What's her name again? It's like Eden or something. Yes. So this is Barbie telling the story to her younger sister, Kelly, because, Dan, as you said, the Barbie world is dense with lore, so you gotta, gotta respect the, the names of the characters. <laughs> um, Barbie has another sister named Skipper, who does not appear here. This is Barbie and Kelly. But the very opening moment is that Barbie's gotta find Kelly in the house, because she's kind of hiding, because she doesn't want to go help at a charity ball. She doesn't want to spend Christmas Eve at this charity ball. And my question, Dan, is how do you help at a ball? Like, what is what would they actually be doing? Like, taking coats or... They don't really explain this. I, like, I think it would have made a little more sense if they were going to go help at, like, a soup kitchen or something. But Barbie 
says, you know, you shouldn't be selfish. We'll still have time to do our usual Christmas thing, but you should be willing to lend a hand and share your time with those who need it. And so she tells the story of this character, Eden Starling, who was supposedly a singer in Victorian England. And this is Barbie, but simultaneously isn't because it's a different actress. Maybe Kelly Sheridan couldn't do a British accent. So we're going to be spending most of our time here, as Dan said, kind of Princess Bride style in this story world of Eden Starling, who is a selfish diva. She's a self-centered prima donna singer. And there's this troupe of other performers who work at the same theater as Eden. And she holds authority over them. Because like Daffy, she says she's going to force them to have to rehearse on Christmas. How does she have this power? Like, what is the setup here? I think she's like the superstar. Like the whole, she controls the whole show because she's the famous one that gets butts in the seat. So she, complete creative control and complete authority over the operation of the play or something like that. Okay. I guess that works. I can accept that. She really seems to hold a managerial role, but rather than talking too much about the business side of it, she's always talking about how she's the star. Yeah. I mean, it, it's all thematic. And this is one of the things I, I really like about this one is that I mentioned a few minutes ago that I think considering these are all aimed at kids, like having to work on Christmas just isn't as part of like something that would be a real issue to them you know they always have off on christmas break or whatever um, you know maybe their mom or dad might have to but but here like the prospect of being a famous singer or a famous person but that means you have to work extra hard on christmas and sacrifice time with your loved ones i think a lot of kids want to be famous and imagine themselves as famous singers or whatever you know that's the type of person they idolize so I thought this was a good alteration on the actual structure because now kids are thinking about themselves rather than having to work on the holidays. They're thinking about it. Oh, if I were a famous singer, it would be great. Oh, but also I'd have to sacrifice all these different things. So even though it maybe logistically it didn't make sense to have the singer be the one who is making everyone work, I thought it worked thematically at least. Hmm, that's a good point. Yeah, I can see that. So as we follow this story along, we learn more about Eden Starling's character. In this version, there's not so many well-known faces stuck around. Kind of just generic humans in most of the roles besides Barbie. And kind of a avatar of Kelly is going to show up as the Tiny Tim character. But that's about it. Everybody else is just a dude. I, I don't know. Well, a dude might not be the right way to put it because all of them have been cast as female characters this time, which is very interesting. Yes. Well, all the ghosts. Yes. Pretty much all the characters, too. Mostly. There's a couple of There's one performer. Yeah. There's a couple guys. But I always wondered, I don't know if this is true, but like, Kind of, if you're thinking about it from a business perspective, if you introduce these characters, you can release a line of dolls that year. 
So you could have Barbie in her charity ball gown and you could have Eden Starling and you could have the the mean aunt and you could have like that's kind of part of the appeal of these is you can bring in new styles because they're all like Barbie ish things that you could easily imagine as dolls, Barbie ish characters. Ooh, wow. You're bringing a lot of insight. I'm impressed. These are good thoughts. I will just point listeners to the Jenny Nicholson video where she talks about the Star Wars doll line that they tried in the last few years. And she had some good things to say about the nature of doll lines. And basically that uh, her argument was what sets dolls and action figures apart is that it's important for dolls to have established personalities and relationships because they are going to be played with by talking to each other. Whereas action figures need to have something that they do because they're going to be played with by fighting each other. Interesting. And just a really some, some interesting ideas in that one. Um, but yeah, I think you're onto something that the reason that these are all different people that we maybe have not seen before is so that they could roll out this doll lineup that could then have the further adventures, the further discussions. <laughs> we do find out that Eden was raised by a presumably spinster aunt who taught her this catchphrase she's going to say multiple times that in a selfish world, the selfish succeed. And that's her mantra. That's what's led to her success. And again, I kind of like this as a, a twist on the Dickens theme that still captures the spirit of it. But maybe in a way, you know, kids aren't paying the bills. So talking about it in terms of fame and hard work as opposed to money and going into the office. Makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And anytime Eden makes one of these mean edicts, we get some kind of commentary from the peanut gallery of these troop performers who are under her. Usually the voice of reason, the calming voice, is this girl, Catherine, who is kind of in the Cratchit role, in that she's most prominent and has the most personal relationship with Eden. She's the troop's costume designer. And she still holds some warm feelings towards Eden because they have this long past where they were childhood friends. Mm-hmm. Which adds a dimension on it. It's like, it's also sort of the bell roll because... In the Christmas past, we see when they were kids and they were friends and they had this really strong bond that kind of mirrors the normal bell. We were in love when when we were young adults beat. Mm -hmm. And eventually the ghosts start showing up. I By this point, I think I watched all four of these in one day, so I wasn't exactly sure what triggered the ghosts to start showing up. Like, was there a Marley in this one? Yes, so the aunt played Marley. Okay. The kind of stage mother aunt who imparted the you must be selfish and focused on you to to make it in this world. That's right. I remember now. Oh, yeah, and she has mirrors chained to her. 
instead of the usual like cash boxes. Which is a, f- a funny touch. Yeah, her sin is vanity. Selfishness, I mean, in its way, it's it's another form of selfishness. Like, greed is one form. All the appetites can be read as a, a type of selfishness. And, yeah, so we get our usual slate of ghosts showing up. And in the past act, we see more of this childhood friendship between Eden and Catherine, where... Eden would sneak away from her music lessons to go spend time with Catherine and her loving family. It's kind of a a surrogate family for Eden. And the two girls would work together putting on these Christmas pageants. Until one year, the nasty aunt catches her and snatches her away. So we're kind of getting like remixed versions of of what we've seen many times right this one definitely felt the freshest it was getting the most creative uh just in terms of having new story beats things we hadn't seen before Mm -hmm. then in the present act we see what the other characters are up to in the current christmas as we usually do and the main bit here is that earlier we saw that Catherine was working on some costumes that weren't for Eden's show. And so Eden's getting suspicious. Oh, she's got, you know, some side action going mm-hmm. on. She's got a side hustle that's distracting her from work. And what could it be? Is she, you know, thinking of taking her business elsewhere? She's going to go work for some other theater. But it's that she is going to help with a Christmas pageant being put on at an orphanage. And so here in Christmas present, she's helping these orphans stage their show. And here's where we get the mirror to the opening thing where they have to go help at the ball. I guess like Barbie in the present isn't like a performer in the same way, but it kind of like sets up a a parallel there where what the good people, the good sympathetic people do is go to uh, help out the poor on these holidays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's astute. But then when we get to future, we see how things would play out if Eden Starling holds to her rule that everybody's got to show up and work on Christmas, which is that once they showed up a little bit late, she canned everybody. So she's the only one left in the whole performance troupe. And so her show tanks. She can't make ends meet anymore and she's destitute. Then a little ways down the line... Catherine has made a big successful career for herself, but she's also embraced the mantra of selfishness. Right. And one thing I liked is when we went into the future segment, it kind of introduced the concept of like branching futures. Like basically it showed like a time warp kind of thing. And is like, this is what could happen is and given current behaviors is perhaps the most likely outcome. But it's not the only outcome. They're depending on one's actions, this could play out differently. So I know that's like a recurring thing that comes up in a Christmas Carol from from Dickens is are you showing me what will be or what could be? I think is along the lines of what Scrooge says in Christmas Yet to Come. And in general, this one does a lot of like lampshading the structure and the themes by cutting back to Barbie telling her sister, like 
here's why I'm telling you this. And this is what we need to know about this person. Oh, look, they were, are they mean or do they really have the soft core that they need to get in touch with and stuff? So I thought that was kind of interesting. Right. So they go through this portal and things are like Swiss cheese. Like there's end game style time portals poking through and opening and closing. And they do talk about this temperamental, flexible nature of the future. But Eden sees the way that her life bends and resolves to change. She gets back in time to set things right. And so I think it's Christmas morning. She sends everybody home, says, don't don't work today. Be with your families. And she orders a wagon to take Catherine home to her family, but not before they both go and help at the orphan show. Yeah. The urchin Christmas. And she has the moment where she says, I will fund everything that needs funding here. You can have all the toys and comforts that you need. And this orphanage will be open forever. Cause that's like the stand in for Tim, tiny Tim dying is tiny Tammy's orphanage will get shut down and they'll have some undisclosed bad outcome, maybe suggested to be death. I don't know. Right. They just have nowhere to go. They are going to be on the street corner, I guess at best. So that is Barbie in a Christmas Carol. Not one we maybe thought going into this podcast in the beginning two years ago that we would ever cover. But in a way, I'm glad we've built to it. Going deeper and deeper into the roster of Christmas carols. Right. So one thing that for me is a mark against this is I didn't really like the animation. It was very, like plasticky yeah which maybe befits a doll line series but that seems charitable that's true of all the barbies that at least the ones i've seen is that the animation is really not good it's a cheap cgi studio i mean they do their best to have like uh memorable characters and stuff but really it's all just like minor variations on the same cheap cgi model with ugly backgrounds kind of dim colors and stuff not not the prettiest animation. This was probably the worst animated of the four. Strictly on animation. Also, I saw a meme at one point, I think on Instagram or something, about animals in the Barbie movies and how they always have weird human faces. Yeah, they they always have these annoying sidekicks. This one was called like Chuzzlewit, which I think was a indirect reference to Fezziwig because there wasn't really a Fezziwig character. No, it's they all had Dickens names. So there's a Dickens book called Martin Chuzzlewit. Oh, okay. And then there was a dog, like a little Toto dog who was named Boz, which I believe was a nickname that Charles Dickens used for himself. Interesting. He had a book that was called like Sketches by Boz. Okay, so these the people who wrote this at least put some thought into it. Yes, I liked that. I liked the names, but I didn't like how the cat had human eyes. Yeah. <laughs> In the fairy ones, it's this little piece of shit called Bibble. <laughs> what kind of animal is it? Well, it's fairies. It's not a real animal. It kind of resembles a blue bumblebee or like a turquoise bumblebee. And it makes this really annoying noise, like gibberish noise. 
Huh. Yeah, sounds annoying. Lots of jokes about Bibble if you ever start going down the uh, Barbie fairy nostalgia rabbit hole. <laughs> I can't even imagine what that means. It's people imagining what Bibble does when he's not hanging around Barbie and like, what is the nature of being a Bibble? <laughs> huh. All right. Well, drop that in the Discord, too. <laughs> Because I'm having trouble picturing that. Well done. In our informal roundabout way, we've made it through the four movies we watched. We did it. So I wanted to propose something to kind of connect these, which is kind of a similarly informal, you could call it a fantasy draft. Really, I just want to talk through some of the characters and like pinpoint maybe who was our favorite Scrooge knock off a few of the roles and then maybe talk like in terms of things that were new this time around because we had so many new things like what did we like the most and what did we like the least sure so dan across these four adaptations when it comes to favorite or best scrooge what are your thoughts i definitely think we got to go with scrooge mcduck what's the name of the voice actor alan young yeah yeah, so that's my pick for sure. I would agree. I'd take the same. If we can't take both the same person, mm -hmm. um, maybe I would give it to Fred Flintstone. I like the way the development is handled in that it kind of happens on multiple levels. I think that's neat, at least. But Barbie is close. I I didn't much like Daffy Duck. Yeah. It was too daffy, too wacky, too slapstick. I I would have Barbie as the runner-up or Eden Starling as the case may be. I thought at least it was like an interesting twist on the Scrooge concept. What about a Cratchit or Scrooge confidant? I don't really have any uh, specific standouts. I mean, you know, Mickey works pretty well, kind of like Kermit in the, the Muppet one. Did you have a favorite or non-favorite? I might give this one to Porky Pig. Okay. He got a lot of screen time. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the most defined role, definitely the most prominent of a Cratchit stand-in. Right. Which is not to say that he's great or terrible. He's just there a lot. And he definitely got a lot of attention, a lot of time devoted to him. Let's see. Um... What about, was there a past ghost or even just like a past segment that stood out to you? Let's see. I need to think about this for a minute. Did you have a favorite that, that was on the, the tip of your tongue? It gets handled in an interesting way in Flintstones where Wilma plays a more and more prominent part. Like she's the ghost, but then also she's Belle. Mm -hmm. And so this is also when finally the misdeeds in Fred's own life or started percolating through into his consciousness. I guess one that I liked was one touch from the Bah Humduck, the Looney Tunes one, is that the name of his business is Lucky Duck, which was also the name of his orphanage where he never got adopted. That was like the past reinvention one is that uh, rather than going to a fancy boarding school where he had to work is that he was at an orphanage and he never got adopted. 
but he kind of like reclaimed that and made it his business name. I thought that was an interesting twist of like kind of uh, hardening yourself against that trauma. It's like immersion therapy, you know, reclaiming it. Oh, yeah. Good catch. And let's see. I'm just kind of spitballing. Was there a favorite Tiny Tim, Dan? I thought this was a rather unremarkable bit of uh, Tiny Tim's. None of them really stood out to me in particular. It was interesting. I think most of them got in the God help us everyone. Or sorry, God bless us everyone. Which is interesting because you don't say God in cartoons too much these days. No, that's true. Did you have a favorite? Well, just to linger on that idea for a moment. Yeah, we got completely secular heathen Christmas specials these days. But God help us, everyone, would be a good episode title, too. (laughs) (laughs) That we're dragging the listeners through adaptations yet again. Favorite Tiny Tim? You're right. Not many standouts here. Uh, I thought it's somewhat interesting that in Mickey's Christmas Carol, we have Mickey and Minnie as Mr. and Mrs. Cratchit, and their brood of children are, like, so Morty and Ferdy are Mickey's nephews who show up from time to time. They're kind of the mouse versions of Huey, Dewey, and Louie. So presumably that's who these children are, and Tiny Tim is one of them. So shout out to Morty and Ferdy. Just not names that get said very much, but Disney true fans know. Yeah, they actually show up in books that I've I've read to my daughters. I was like, I don't remember these characters, but I guess I don't. I mean, I guess they are Morty and Ferdy. That's actually how I knew about them, too, as I had some like golden book that they were in. Same. Yeah. And like a five minute stories collection. Mm-hmm. And those are pretty hot right now in the, the kids book world. <laughs> So hot right now. Oh, you haven't seen Zoolander. Oh, you got to watch Zoolander, Dan. We didn't talk about it in 100 film favorites, but it's a cultural touchstone. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it. Yeah. I mean, I may have like once in middle school, but half paying attention. Anyways, I think we got to talk about Bells, too. Okay, let's talk Bells. I think they, it was kind of, all of them had their own spin on the Bells. We had, of course, Goo Goo Eyes, Daisy. We had uh, Wilma like inserting herself into the play as Belle, which I thought was interesting. And then I think my favorite might have been the like turning Belle into a childhood friend stand in in the Barbie one. I thought that was a really interesting way to like kind of have some similar values, but not have it be about romance, which I think works well for the Barbie universe, which is more like girl power, etc. So I thought that was good. Mm hmm. Yeah, I agree. I was surprised how similar Bah Humduck and the Barbie special were in the innovations they introduced. Both of them were the furthest afield from the original Dickens narrative. Both of them had a tyrannical boss who forces their employees to work on Christmas Day. Both didn't really have a bell. Right. Barbie comes the closest of the two. But, you know, to have those be the last two that I watched and to be drawing parallels between them, I, I thought was rather interesting. Yeah, sure. So uh, in terms of things that were new, Dan, were there any 
innovations that you found particularly compelling or worthwhile or maybe something that was new that you didn't like uh i mean we talked about most of them one thing i thought was really ridiculous and kind of dumb is in the barbie one if you pull up the credits at the very end it has a quote it says keep the beauty of christmas in your heart every day of the year attributed to barbie but like you're just paraphrasing Dickens, a, a line from the thing and just attributing it to Barbie. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know if she actually said that in the previous special, but I thought that was funny. It's like the Michael Scott thing. It's like where he says, I don't remember what the quote is. You miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take or something. Dash Wayne Gretzky dash Michael Scott. It's like the same concept there. <laughs> I didn't even register that. I was in a, a just a Christmas Carol days yeah. by the end of the fourth one, but I liked that. I just had it on. I wasn't even paying attention, and then it caught my eye, and it made me laugh out loud. So, <laughs> yeah, they can really put any words they want in Barbie's mouth. It's like it doesn't really mean anything that she said that when you wrote it for her to say. Did you have any particular favorite or least favorite innovations, Brian? It was nice to see just a bit of change, a bit of flexibility. And that's why it was kind of surprising when I saw what I thought of as so many similar beats mm -hmm. in the Looney Tunes and the Barbie one. The Barbie definitely mixes it up the most, though. So, Dan, let's do it. Let's say whether these films that we've watched are good. That's what the people are here for, ostensibly. All right, let's do it. I'm ready. Do you have it penciled in? More or less. Okay. Yeah, I've got my envelope. So I want to go in the order that we talked about them. So for Mickey's Christmas Carol, Dan, what's your verdict? So Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movies a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Toward a Good, which is an eight out of eight. So I guess I'll go first. Yeah, I like this one a lot. I'm I'm on the fence between a good and a very good. Um, in my previous notes, when I watched it last year, I gave it a very good, but then I ranked it below some goods when I did my uh, overall Christmas Carol ranking. I ranked the ones I had seen last year uh, all. I think I'd seen 12 as of the uh, end of the holiday season last year. Um, so I'm going to just give it a, a very high five good. The reason that it's not quite higher, I think it executes things pretty well. It's just so rushed that I all I can feel when I watch it is how rushed it is. So, uh, you know, it's a good one overall. I think, it, like you said, it's a good introduction to it. Just wish that they had spread it out over twice the length instead of 22 minutes, 25 minutes, whatever it is. So, Brian, what about you? Mickey Christmas Carol. So this rating is definitely going to be biased by the fact this is the first version of the story that I saw. Alan Young might still give my favorite performance of any Scrooge. I, I really buy him as the nasty Scrooge at the start and the changed Scrooge at the end. You're right that it's super rushed. I would love to see the hour-long treatment of this. But even as is, I'm going to give this one a 7 out of 8. Exceptionally good. That's where it lands for me. Nice. Also, a lot of that is the opening credits. I love that tune and that artistic presentation and now dan a flintstones christmas carol from 1994 yeah so this one i kind of really went up and down the ratings quite a bit um 
I, I think it's really clever the way that it has the two layer Christmas carol. Although I think it, it really doesn't pay off on it quite as much as I hoped. It has a couple of moments where it kind of does, but I wish it did a little bit more. I'm on the low four, high three. I'm going to give this one a three, a not, not good on the is it good scale. I, I like it. It's definitely not bad, um, but I would probably rather watch just about any of the other ones that we've discussed over the past two years than this Flintstones one. Um, but it's got some clever, clever stuff in it. But what about you, Brian? Ooh, that's interesting. I'm curious to hear what your ratings for the other two are. I thought this one worked pretty well. It's nothing too special to write home about. But considering that the assignment was stick the Flintstones characters into the roles in A Christmas Carol, it does that in a pretty creative way, a fairly satisfying way. I'm going to give it a five out of eight, a good. Nice. You know? It does what it set out to do in a somewhat interesting way. Uh, I guess another thing there is that I just get kind of tired of stone related puns like that as a comic engine dragged out for 45 minutes is kind of a challenge. So, <laughs> Or an hour. I think this one, does this one crack a full hour? I can't remember, but yeah. I think it was pretty close to an hour on Amazon. Yeah. So it was a rocky road for you. There you go. And now... <laughs> 2006's Bah Humduck, Dan. This one's also getting a three. It's getting a lower three for me. I thought it was easily the weakest of them. Really kind of broken structure in terms of just dragging out the intro for half the length and then rushing through the beats and lots of silliness in there. I will say, though, I kind of liked that it was a totally different tone on The Christmas Carol. Just had some goofy slapstick stuff and some modern hijinks in there while still kind of retaining the spirit of it. Still didn't quite work for me, so it's on a low end of a three for me, but it, it, it had its moments and its charms. What about you, Brian? This one gets a three for me as well, which we call not not good. Yeah, I just didn't love it. It's not terrible. You know, it does work in the requisite... Looney Tunes gags, like each character shows up and does the thing that you would expect them to do. It's not super married to the original Dickens narrative, so it gets some credit for being somewhat creative in that regard. But something about the fact that it's Looney Tunes characters so long after they were introduced, like you can tell it's not Mel Blanc. And in that regard, it feels inauthentic. It just feels like a corporate shill product. But I mean, maybe that plays in in some way to the message of corporate tyranny. Interesting. Metal air. So I don't know. Maybe I'll rewatch this one at some point. I'm glad that we did watch it. It's not a complete waste. Uh, nothing too special, though. Okay, and Dan... Our last selection of the evening, Barbie in A Christmas Carol from 2008. What do you think? I like this one a lot. I'm going to exhibit some restraint and give it a, a another high-ish five because I thought it, I really liked the narrative stuff it did and the way that it kind of reimagined it in a sort of like vision of a growing young woman's perspective and kind of reinterpreted it and had some, had some good narrative stuff, remixing beats and blending characters together and stuff and yeah the the animation's pretty bad and that uh cat character gets old 
And I actually just wish it was a little darker and a little more grim. Like, I wish I know you can't be too much of that. But honestly, like Mickey did. I don't know. Mickey has the darkness. Why not do a little bit of that with the Barbie? I feel like it kind of soft pedaled the Christmas yet to come. Um, and I would have loved to see that go just a little harder. So I'm going to give this one a good because I actually think it's pretty fresh and it's got some fun stuff to do with it. So that's a, a five out of eight a good for me on that one, Brian. What about you? <laughs> Yeah, there was nobody stealing from Barbie's corpse. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. So that sets it back a ways. Yeah, for me, this one, you've actually raised it a little bit in my estimation. Because this is definitely the most creative adaptation we've probably considered overall. Like, it has the, the bare bones of the Christmas Carol structure and the message to not be selfish. But... It just, it takes things in a new direction, and it works, more or less, overall. For me, I can't quite get past the flatness of the animation. For me, this is a four, a good-ish. Nice. So, better than Daffy, but it landing third of the ones we watched this time around. But yeah, it's creative. It's better than you might think. I'm interested, Dan, if you're going to write a review of this one for your blog site. Yeah, I, I probably will. I'll pro I, I don't know if I'll write about all of these, but I think I'll at least get the Barbie one in there and probably Mickey as well. But I'll think about it for sure. Come up with some things to say about it. I look forward to it, Dan. And that's thegoodsreviews.com. So I'd love to have listeners come join me there too. And thank you listeners for joining us here in this installment of the podcast. The Christmas season is off to a great start, I think. This is something we got to do every year. So, Dan, when we inevitably reach next December and are talking Christmas Carol again, any thoughts on how we might do it? I still want to see old ass Christmas carols. Like there's a lot of like pre-1940 Christmas carols you could watch. Um, I also think more uh, modern interpretations like reimaginings. I think you could also go like more experimental ones. Like I'm thinking the Richard Williams animation, and there's probably a couple others out there, like the dark mini series from a couple of years ago. So I don't know. I'd love to, to hear what you come up with us for us next year. Yeah. Yeah. My instinct is leaning towards modern set ones. So things like Scrooged. Yeah. Also, we just got one, but it's on Apple TV, which nobody has. It's that one that is in all the sidebar ads the last couple of days, Spirited, starring Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds, right? Gotta see that one. I don't know if I'm willing to go the extra mile and sign up for a trial period of Apple TV. We'll have to see, but I am very curious. So something like that probably on the horizon when next year rolls around. But, Dan, more immediately, what lies in the future for the goods yet to come? I like that, goods yet to come. So, Brian, we're going to watch, I think it's Anna. I don't know if it's Anna or Anna. I haven't even watched it or heard anyone pronounce it, but I found this reference somewhere. It's called Anna and the Apocalypse from 2017. It is a Christmas horror comedy musical, also a teen movie. So I'm just so curious on what this is going to be. Are you, have you seen this one? No, I am trying to think if I've even heard of it, but it sounds like a fun ride. Yeah. So Anna and the Apocalypse, 
we'll see if it's Anna or Anna when we listen, but that's, that's what we'll be watching next week. So have a good one, Brian. Yes, you too. Thanks for joining me again. And you as well, listeners, tune in next time here on The Goods. Goods.